in 2 John today, and we are finishing 2 John today. It's 13 verses. We're going to walk through a whole book of the Bible. So if you've never read a whole book of the Bible, you can give yourself a hand tonight because you will, uh, if you hang out for the next 40, 50 minutes, you will have done that. Uh, 2 John is a lot like 1 John theme-wise in that it has several things, walking in truth and, and love and what it means to be a follower and walk, walk, watching out for um, false teachers in the same context that First John has. Matter of fact, it's basically in these 13 verses, a summary of First John. So some scholars actually wonder if Second John was written before First John. Uh, as far as we know, it was written around the same time. And people wonder maybe First John, because it expounds on all of these thoughts uh, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe First John was written after Second John, but uh, we don't know that for sure. So in Second John, as we walk through these 13 verses, you will see the same themes that we covered uh, for, in a large part, in First John. Um, but we're going to, instead of just honing in on one theme, we're going to do something a little bit different. Remember, John, he's a spiritual father to these people, um, and he is a disciple maker. And you and I are called to make disciples, right? The whole point of us gathering on Wednesday nights is really not just to, to study the word, but to equip you to be able to train others so that I disciple you so you can disciple others. And so um, I want you to know, if you're here and you've never taken uh, the Great Commission seriously, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, um, you need to know there's a promise at the end. Verse 20, it says, And surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. There is an experience um, in not just seeing God's work, but being a part of God's work that changes the life of every believer. And there's only so far that you can go with God in trying to obey his commands, trying to hear about God's will for your life, his plan for your life. If you don't take the Great Commission serious uh, to not just be the work, but to participate in the work, Man, you're missing out on a lot because God's presence is powerful. It's like in harvest season this summer, uh, the difference between driving down the highway and seeing the wheat harvest and saying, wow, I can appreciate that. That's beautiful compared to the farmer who sowed that seed and watered it and will harvest it. There's two completely different experiences. And I think for a lot of Christians, we're used to hearing about preachers and hearing missionaries come and speak about God's work and how he's worked in these people's lives. And we don't know what it's like to be on the front lines of that. And for some of us, it's a stalemate process in our own sanctification that we haven't taken the Great Commission serious. And so we we aren't seeing growth because there's only so far uh, you can go when you're saying, God, I want to hear and learn all about you from the sidelines. Eventually, he says, you got to get in the game. You got to get in the game. And it's a powerful thing if you do. Now, I think a lot of times in church, uh, we say, Got to make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. But how many times you wonder, how in the world do you actually make disciples, right? Like we say do it all the time. It's the Great Commission. But how do you actually do it? I've kind of lived by this simple rule of thumb. Um, and it's helped me as a, as a pastor, but it's helped me just as a Christian. That everywhere I go, all day long, everyone I interact with, my mindset is this. How can I help people to follow Jesus? I know that sounds simple, but if you want to be a disciple maker and you take that one thought, that one frame of mind throughout your work day, throughout your family life, everyone, that you think every human interaction is an opportunity to help that person wherever they are. They might not believe at all 
They might not have a clue about Jesus and, and what he's done on the cross for us. Or they might be a mature Christian. They might be more mature than you. But you can have an impact in, in discipling them. For some, man, it's, it's huge. Um, it's, it's, hey, you've got to tell them about the gospel because they have no clue who Jesus is. And it's intense and might even take years of your life pouring into them. Others, it might simply be you coming in to church tonight or, or on a Sunday and you see another Christian and you just smile at them. You can tell, man, maybe things are going rough for them, but you just encourage them with a smile. Just kind of, hey, keep on keeping on. Like, that's something so small. But that's, that's discipleship too. And I think we've put this idea of discipleship way up here so only a few Christians can, can grasp it, that if you can't preach really well, if you can't get out there with a great outgoing personality that you can't partake in the Great Commission. And, and, and I think Jesus and the way that he lived and what he taught puts it down on the ground for all of us to partake in. And you'll start to see, if you think, if you think to yourself, how can I help everyone that I see to follow Jesus? knowing that's a little bit different for each one. It will change the way that you view um, how God's using you and you're part of the Great Commission. So, tonight, I hope that this is, um, this is powerful for you, but I, I want you to look at this from a different angle. I want you to picture yourself having coffee with a friend. Uh, I want you to picture yourself just having a conversation with a friend. Whoever you go to advice to, for or whoever comes to advice for you, I want you to think about your conversations. And what we're going to talk about, we're going to have a lot to cover tonight, is how to get this back on the uh, Apple TV. All right. Let's try this one more time. It's like Apple TV is like that annoying little brother that just is always poking, poking, poking at me. And I'm like, I'm glad we're part of the same family. But man... All right, if this pops off again, my man Logan is going to bail me out. He's going to come up here and just hook it up for me, and we're not going to miss a beat. Sound good? All right. So tonight we're going to be talking in these 13 verses about what a disciple needs to know. So picture yourself discipling someone else. These are some things, not exhaustive, but these are some things that will help you know what you should be sharing with them. Verses 1 through 4, it says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Remember, truth is both a doctrine and a person. It's Jesus. He said, I am the truth. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. First thing we see, what a disciple needs to know is that you're leading with good intentions. That you're leading with good intentions. Believe it or not, there's a lot of people in the church who want to pour into other people's lives, but they care oftentimes more about being right than they do helpful. You know anyone like that, right? They, they, uh, they don't really have great intentions. They don't really want to help people to know and have an intimate relationship with Jesus. It's important that the person you're speaking to knows that you've got good intentions. He says, the elder. So this is who's writing it. Now, this is interesting because who, who's the elder, right? It doesn't say in First John, the elder. And so here in Second John, all of a sudden, it says the elder. Some scholars have debated, maybe this isn't John because he didn't start in First John saying the elder. But more than likely, 
It is. Uh, because you look at the language, he says, truth, 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 and no, 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 abide, abide, abide. These are all words used throughout Scripture, but none of them use, no, no book uses it like John does in the Gospel of John and First John. And so the language lets us know this is more than likely, um, this is more than likely First John. It also, in, or excuse me, the author John. In Third John, you'll see him refer to um, to uh, an individual and not um, not a church. So John being the elder, more than likely being the elder, says to the elect lady and her children. And again, that's the question, who is the elect lady? Is this an individual or is this the church? Now, individual, again, in Third John, it says uh, to my friend Gaius. So he actually says an individual's name. So he's probably not just speaking to an individual because people don't know who in the world would this lady be with her children. Like that's an odd way to start this whole thing. But we believe it's more than likely the church um, for a couple reasons. Number one, again, he refers to an individual in Third John. So if that was the case here, why wouldn't he just say the individual's name? And number two, you look all throughout Scripture and you see feminine language used for the church. We are the bride of Christ. You go way back in the Old Testament. He talks to us, talks about us being a prostitute. Israel being being a prostitute um, in God's eyes when they had betrayed God, and it would have also just been awkward for him. And this might sound bad, but to write to a church, knowing there's elders there, to write to an individual lady um, when he's referring to the men of the church and, and the whole church. So it's probably John, and it's probably him writing to the Ephesian church. Now, here's the thing. He says, I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth. And then he goes on, and the rest of this is very encouraging. If you remember First John, man, it was some hard stuff. And yet he's really encouraging. He says at the bottom in verse 4, I rejoiced greatly. He could come out of the gate and just hammer. Because as you're going to see, he, he's dealing with false teachers in the church. Like his heart probably had to be uh, hurting for these people. But he doesn't come out of the gates hammering them. He comes out encouraging them, building them up. When you disciple someone, they need to know that you actually care about them, that you want what's best for them. You know, a lot of non-believers look at the church, and what do they think about us? They think, man, you guys are judgmental. Why? Because we often lead with judgment, don't we? We often lead with highlighting what's wrong with somebody. If you know you're going to be meeting with someone, even someone that you love, how often do you go into that meeting and you're thinking, okay, I know this is happening in their life and I know they're a little bit off course here. And so uh, you're thinking about how to correct them. And you forget this part that you've got to reaffirm, not that you've got to give them a compliment sandwich, but you've got to let them know, I love you. I love you. I want, I, got, I, I want you to follow Jesus. I have good intentions in speaking to you. Not too long ago, after a Sunday service, so this has happened on a whole bunch of times, but uh, I'll just use the most recent one. I was um, standing out front, and a guy who I had met earlier, I knew his family, but he was just visiting uh, for the day, and he was nice when I talked to him before the, the church service, but afterwards, man, he came straight up to me, and I could tell, like, he, he didn't want to be mean. Like, he wasn't just a mean-hearted dude, but he came up to me. He got right up in my personal space. You know when someone, like, gets real close to your face and you just do the courtesy back step? <laughs> All right, now we can start this. Please don't get up in my space. That makes me uncomfortable. And, and you know they're going to say something either really good or really bad. People don't generally get that intense unless there's something polarizing about to come out of their mouth. And he said right off the bat, 
the preacher left off this, and then the message, they left off this, and they left off this, and left off this. He just went right down. I was kind of taken back. I, I was like, wow, this is, this is intense. And I said, well, I don't think that it was that unclear. And it's only a 40-minute sermon. He couldn't preach the whole Bible in just that sermon. So, yeah, there were some things left out. And he went, well, and what about this? And he went on a whole nother rant. Finally, I just, I don't even know the guy, but I just grabbed his shoulder to kind of give him the old friend massage. And I was just like, don't get caught in the detail. Like, just worship Jesus. It's okay. What he was saying didn't really matter. It didn't change anything. Um, there wasn't a lot of legitimacy to what he was saying. But I remember thinking to myself, Gosh, number one, I didn't even preach the message. <laughs> so so if, if he's hating on it that much, like picture what he would have done to the guy who preached it. Number two, this is what people think about Christians. I told him at the end, I said, don't, don't stress, just relax a little bit. So, oh, no, 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 no. He kind of stormed off. Came back 10 minutes later and he was more calm and cool. But how many times is that what we're like? We highlight the wrong in everyone's life, but we don't ever affirm that we love them and that we have good intentions. Let me ask you, I want to apply these first four verses. When was the last time you encouraged a Christian? Some of us are good at telling people how, how wrong they are. But when was the last time you encouraged the people that you're pouring into? You see, you've got to go in with a mindset that you are intentionally looking for the things that they're doing well. Because no matter who they are, if they want to follow Jesus, even if they have been completely rebellious in every area of life, the simple fact that they want to talk to you about Jesus is a huge thumbs up. Like That's evidence of God's Holy Spirit moving in their life. You can find something good in everyone. We've got to make sure as Christians that we lead with good intentions. Verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady... Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Second thing the disciples need to know is we've got to teach them how to love. We've got to teach them how to love. Of course, First John, we talk about this quite a bit, that we are to love Christians. Christians love Christians. If you love God, you've got to love God's people. You ever been talking to a friend, even like in a Christian relationship, where you've helped them kind of dissect the drama going on in their life, and you've realized that, number one, they've always got some drama. <laughs> it just kind of changes each time you talk to them. But that their issues usually revolve around somebody having done them wrong or this undertone that the world's out to get them. You got any friends like that? If not, you might be that friend for someone else. But you ever, you ever had that conversation? And what you realize one day is, man, I can't say that they hate, but they certainly got a spirit of hate. Like, like they, they, they have a hard time loving the people in their life, much less Christians. Now, I'm going to give you a list. This isn't to be judgmental. But this is, just a, this is just to draw you in because I know that we, we work with these people. We, we serve these people. We love these people. And quite frankly, we are these people. Um, but here's four different folks that you are probably going to encounter if you take discipleship serious. Four common types of people who might not be haters per se, but they certainly got a spirit of hate. Number one is the constant complainer. Do you know the constant complainer? That person who, who just happens to find the worst in everything. 
every situation, in their job, in their family, in their friends, in their relationships, in, in the church. That they're kind of glass, half-empty people. Like there's always something wrong. And you've wondered, why in the world do they do this? And for them, it's half their personality and half just their lifestyle. This is just routine for them, that they actually connect with people by complaining and griping. You ever been in line um, for something and you just started small talk with a stranger next to you and realized like really quick within two or three sentences that they're complaining? Like immediately, like you say something about the weather, they're like, yeah, the weather's just been horrible lately. It's so hot outside, so cold outside. It's horrible. You're like, huh, that's weird. I don't even know you, but you feel comfortable enough to complain to me. That's odd. Or, well, this line is slow. This line's horrible. What are they doing up there? Like in our culture, people connect, don't they, by complaining. They find common ground in complaining. You're going to find that even in Christians. Number two, the disgruntled employee syndrome. This is, this is what I call those folks who um, they, they lack good things. They lack Jesus. They, they, they have something missing. And so they're just joyless, right? They're kind of like that disgruntled employee who's just always frustrated with everyone and everything. They just can't be happy. And you feel bad for them because you can see there is a hole in your life whether it's someone who doesn't know Jesus at all as Lord, and you can tell, man, that, that hole's got to be filled, or even a Christian who, who, who's not in the Word of God. Um, they're not fanning into flame. Man, the, the Spirit that God has put in them, the Holy Spirit. And they're just running on E all the time, and you're like, you gotta, you got to add some good stuff. You're lacking some good stuff. Like, I want to follow Jesus, but they're not doing anything to take steps. They're always frustrated. Number three, the poisoned well. This is the opposite. This is... Subtraction by addition, <laughs> when they have actually added the wrong, they got a culture. Maybe it's their workplace, maybe it's their home life, but they got people around them who just spew venom. And so they, they've got just kind of some poison. And they want good, but the weeds of this world are entangling them. And they want to follow Jesus, but they find themselves just pulled back in to whether it's a rough crowd or um, just junk could be the music they listen to, the, the, the people they put around them, but they've added the wrong stuff to their life. Or number four, the walking wounded. This is those folks who, um, they're hurt, and they're taking it out on everyone around them. It could be something that happened two weeks ago or something that happened 20 years ago, but they've got pain in their life. It, it, it is deep-rooted, and you know it doesn't matter what the situation is. When you sit down to disciple them or to talk to them about God, they've just got pain, and they project it onto every situation and every person in their life. And you know, man, the answer to all four of these things, it's obviously Jesus. It's obviously knowing him and, and finding healing in him. But all four of these things, I'm not just—I'm not talking about unbelievers. Like you find this in Christians. So don't ever underestimate the power of the gospel, even for the believer. First Peter four eight says that love covers a multitude of sins. It's so important to teach people to love one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Not just theologically, the love of Jesus on the cross and His blood shed for us—that obviously covers a multitude of sins, all of them. But if you have love for the people around you as a disposition, a predisposition, and not a reaction to damage you've done in the relationship, oh, I messed up. Here, let me try to make this right. Let me try to do something good for you. 
But a predisposition, what you're going to find is when you help others to love one another, is they're not going to nitpick each other. They're not going to nitpick their own lives. They're going to, they're going to not question and just they're going to give people the benefit of the doubt. How many Christians don't give other Christians the benefit of the doubt? Like we're out to get each other. But if you have a predisposition of love, then you, you can tell the person you're discipling, listen, hey, not everyone's out to get you. Not, not everyone hates you. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Trust that they got good intentions. It's important. So the question, well, how in the world do you teach someone to love? Sounds hard, right? You can't make someone love. I know that's what we want. We want to make people love. You can't make someone love, right? But you can teach them. And this is different for everyone and in every situation, every age. Like Silas, a couple days ago, we were at lunch. He had a whole bunch of Easter candy, and we all got to pick one snack. And he got uh, these little tiny M&Ms, like the little ones that, like, why are they even make them? Like, you can't even taste them. There's nothing. You got to eat all of them in one bite to get any enjoyment out of them. Anyway, he wanted these. Um, and so he's eating them. And then I got some Reese's Pieces, and he never had them before. He didn't know the deliciousness of the, the peanut butter inside. And it was blowing his mind. I was showing him the middle, like, dude, it's got peanut butter. He's like, oh, the big ones have peanut butter. And he's just wrestling with this idea of chocolate and peanut butter and an awesomeness all together. And, and there was just one left. And he had his own snacks. I had mine. And I said, no, oh, that's mine, buddy. And he said, oh, okay. And I said, hey, you can have it, buddy. He looked at me and said, oh, daddy. Like for a three-year-old who loves candy, he learned something. And I said, Silas, you know why I'm giving this? Like, I want to enjoy this, but I'm, I'm giving this to you because I want to sacrifice for you. Uh, I, want, I want to show you love. You see, <laughs> Even for a three-year-old, you can show, this is what love looks like. I can't make you love anyone, but I can tell you what love looks like. And let me, let me encourage you. If you find someone that you're discipling and, and they have a hard time loving, maybe some of those things here are, are in their lives, there's three things. And we're not going to spend a bunch of time talking about them. But if you want to know how can you help someone you're discipling to know how to love, Challenge them in these three ways, the three S's. Whatever drama they got going on, they got issues with the person, ask them this. Okay, I know you feel hurt. I know you feel jaded. I know there's issues in your family, your workplace. How can you serve them? How can you serve them? Love covers a multitude of sins. Serving someone covers a bunch too. How can you serve them? It changes their heart, changes everything about the situation. Number two, ask them, how can you sacrifice how can you sacrifice for this relationship? You want biblical love walked out? Ask him, so, okay, so your family did you wrong or, or a coworker did you wrong or, or something. To sacrifice for you might mean that you give up the right to complain. To sacrifice for you might be that, that you go tomorrow without questioning their intentions. Maybe they got a history of doing you wrong. But to sacrifice means you're going to give up some of the venom that you got in this relationship. It's going to heal you as much as heal them. And third, how can you be selfless in this? How can you be selfless? This means, how can you humble yourself and say, I'm not out to get mine in this relationship, but I'm coming, whether it's marriage, whether it's parenting, whether it's friends, whatever it is, I'm coming to be a blessing to this thing. I'm not looking at what I can pull out of it, but Christ-centered, loving one another, the way it is walked out is the same thing that we see on the cross. He was 
serving us? He said, what did he come to do? Serve, not to be served, right? He, he said, like, sacrifice. He's the lamb. And it was obviously selfless. And then he did it for us. It was in our place. You can help anyone you disciple and obviously point them back. This is, this is what love from the cross looks like. Serving, sacrifice, and selflessness. Teach them to love. Verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Third thing, if you want to disciple someone, you've got to teach them to obey Jesus. This seems simple, but you've got to teach them to obey Jesus. We talked this whole thing, this whole series is, is how to follow Jesus. And you've got to actually obey the commands of Jesus to follow Jesus. If someone says, man, I have a hard time loving the people in my life. I have a hard time loving Christians, but I'm just going to focus on obeying God and do that. How, how well does that work? Because what are you going to obey that doesn't involve you loving people? You can't, you can't get out of love. That's one of the many commandments. So many of the commandments that Jesus has isn't, is based around <clears throat> excuse me, being around one another. You've got to be around other people to live out the commands of Jesus because it's your reaction and your interaction with them. That's the commands. And yet Christians have tried to make maturity in the Christian faith so individualistic that, that we try to stay in our little hobbit holes and we got our little devotion book and we're reading about Jesus and we're having us communion with God and we say, yes, that's maturity, that's great. And Jesus is saying, how often did any of my disciples when I was on earth with them get to be alone? They were on a three-year camping trip with each other. They rarely got to be alone. I had to wake up early, early, early in the morning and go across the lake to get any alone time with God. We spent time together because that's what it means to follow me. Is that we're together. You got to obey Jesus. Let me, um, let me do something. This, this is getting crazy, isn't it? I did an object lesson for Good Friday out of my comfort zone. Now I'm using a board and I'm going to write something. I feel so uncomfortable right now, but this is stretching me. When... So I have a degree in fire science. A lot of help it's been so far in ministry. But for the next 10 seconds, it's going to help me. So in order to have fire, we have scientifically what they call the fire tetrahedron. And that is that you've got to have a heat source. In order to have fire, you have to have a heat source. Uh, you have to have fuel, something that's going to burn in order to have fire. And you've got to have oxygen. And if you have any two of these without the third, you will have what they call incomplete combustion. That's where you get the black smoke and it smolders and it's just not fire. It's incomplete combustion. If you've got heat and fuel but you don't have oxygen, you're going to get a bunch of black smoke. If you've got these two but you ain't got heat, you ain't going to get anything. If you've got heat in here, you're just going to have a hot summer day. But you've got to have fuel as well, right? So all of these things together work. Two of them don't work. All three of them can make fire. Now, in discipleship, we have a little bit of a discipleship tetrahedron. My handwriting is amazing.
And as a church, we've got to make sure when we disciple people that we don't get any two of them without the three. So, I'm throwing stuff around here. You've got three parts to this. You've got you with Holy Spirit-led intentions, right? You've got knowledge. You've got to know about Jesus. You've got to know what he has commanded. And you've got relationships. You have to have an avenue to actually live out the commands of Jesus, right? Anyone disagree with any of that? What happens when you take two of them, but you don't have the third? Now, obviously, relationships and knowledge, but it doesn't involve you. <laughs> oh, ain't going to disciple anyone there. But if you've got yourself and, and knowledge, this is, this is the, the Sunday school culture. And folks, now, this might sound horrible, in general in the evangelical church, 50 years and up, that grew up in the Sunday school culture, what did they highlight? They highlighted knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. That was a sign of maturity, that the more you know about the Bible, the more you follow Jesus. Well, you can know about Jesus all day long. The demons know more about Jesus than anyone in this room, but they don't follow Jesus. And so that is incomplete discipleship. But now I'm I'm, I'm harping on the older generation. Let's go to the younger generation, the millennials. We have gone to an opposite ditch. Instead of just knowledge-based, stuff, that Sunday school culture, we, we're in a whole nother arena where we believe in relationships and we, we love being with people and we highlight things like authenticity and transparency. We love it from our preachers now. We want it in our relationships. That's what you got to do to be open. You got social media accounts all over the place trying to show who you really are. Does that really work? Right? No, it doesn't, doesn't really show who you are, but that's what we try to do. And so right there, we got to understand that is a trend in the culture right now, in the church right now, where you've got relationships as the priority. But if people don't know how to follow Jesus, you can be Christians in relationship without being Christian community. That makes sense. And so you've got to have all three of these together. What's really healthy is when you take knowledge, you've got to know what Jesus teaches, and, and then you've got relationships. This is how we can live them out together. And you have you led by the Spirit. That's where discipleship really happens. Now, the most common thing that I hear against this from most, oh, this is just the never-ending struggle with, with a lot of us, is I don't know how to read the Scriptures. Like, I want to, but um, I, just, I just have a hard time reading the Bible. Of course, the Spirit has to enlighten you. It's good to come to things like this. But I have people who struggle with reading the Bible. You've got to know, you know what Jesus actually commands. If you're discipling someone and you come back to me and you say, they don't know what Jesus commands, what should I do? Stop making excuses and read the Bible. I know that sounds mean, doesn't it? But our country, listen, listen, our culture loves sappy love stories, do we not? You throw something like the notebook out there in Hollywood, you're going to make money, right? Because we love the, the story that starts <clears throat> innocently enough, and then people fall in love, and then they create their own problems, but then they become the hero of their own stories, right? You know, you know that kind of story? Listen, the most beautiful love story that we have, I believe in the entire world, ever have, ever will, is God's love for us and what he's done on the cross. The, the most Sad love story that we have is our love for God. We as a people make more excuses in our relationship with God. Oh, I just don't have time to read the Bible. Oh, I don't want to get to know. If we, put that, if we acted like that in any other relationship, man, we'd be in therapy all day, every day. 
If you said, well, I'm just having a hard time. I haven't talked to my spouse in, in like a week. I mean, on Sunday mornings, I usually will talk to them, but it's just mostly when someone's telling me about them. It's kind of like a voicemail about them. You know, like, like you, you wouldn't have a marriage that lasted very long, would you? No one has to convince me when I go home to talk to my son. He's in my family. I love him. But yet all the time, well, I just struggle to get into the word. I just struggle to, to spend time with God. We've got to stop making excuses. We've got to stop making excuses. Listen, let me ask you. Who are you studying the Bible with? Do you study it with anyone else? When I meet with people, regardless of what we're talking about, I have a, I have a three-appointment rule. That if someone's going to schedule three appointments with me, that we're not going to continue after that third appointment unless we got some sort of Bible reading plan together. And I don't have a wonderful curriculum. I don't have years of experience that have pointed me to this amazing curriculum that only pastors can use. No, I just start in the Gospels. I say, let's just read the Bible together. We'll just start in John. We'll learn about Jesus. And we'll start walking together. Because the Word of God is where the power is. You've got, you got to know what Jesus commands in order to actually obey Jesus. Verses 7 and 8. John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, and those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what, you, what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Next thing. So you've got to teach them about the haters. You've got to teach them about the haters. If you're going to disciple someone, they need to know there's an enemy. Now, I'm not talking about haters as in everyone who doesn't want um, you to have a perfect, wonderful life. I'm not talking about friends. I'm not talking about all that stuff. I'm talking about the enemy, the, de- the devil. Of course, this is a huge theme in 1 John. He says, many deceivers, and he's addressing the false teachers, those who were part of what we call docetism, and it was saying that Jesus didn't actually physically come in the flesh. He was some kind of angelic hologram that was there, but he didn't actually come in the flesh. Therefore, he didn't die on the cross. His blood wasn't really shed. He didn't actually have a physical resurrection because he was actually not here. They denied the coming of Jesus in the flesh. And then he says that such is a deceiver and the Antichrist. If you go back to 1 John, remember the Antichrist wasn't just the devil, and in times, even though there is in Scripture a reference to the Antichrist, the one, this, this um, in times Antichrist, but the spirit of an Antichrist that comes in false teachers, people who speak falsehoods. You've got to watch out for it. One of the primary things that the devil wants to do in your life is to convince you that he's not real. And oftentimes we'll disciple people and we'll, we'll try to walk through drama with them and walk through their life with them and they'll have issue after issue after issue and, and they don't ever know about the spiritual forces of evil behind things. And so they come to roadblock, 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 roadblock and you just kind of scratch your head. Well, have you tried this? Well, have you tried turning your computer off so you don't look at this? And well, have you tried doing this? And you try to give them so much practical information that you just at some point got to just stop it. And say, do you know there's a devil and he hates you? Do you know there's spiritual forces? They hate you. Because if you don't know there's an enemy, you can't fight against that enemy. And what happens to sinners, to fallen, broken people like you and I, when we don't know there's an enemy, when we have flaws, when we have sin, who do we blame? 
We shift blame from the enemy and we shift it to others and ourselves. And if you're discipling, <coughs> excuse me, you're discipling someone and you find them constantly blaming others for their life or you find them constantly blaming themselves for their own flaws, listen, I'm not saying we don't take responsibility. We absolutely need to take responsibility for our own actions. But we've got to realize we're not fighting against flesh and blood, as Paul says. We're not fighting against our friends. These people that you see that feel like the real haters aren't the ones we're fighting against. It's the enemy. It's the devil. It's demonic force. And you say, okay, Ryan, you want me to tell someone about this? We've never talked about this kind of weird stuff. What do I even know about this weird demonic stuff? Listen, I'm not saying you need to know every detail. I don't know every detail. Is it weird? Yeah, it feels weird. But if you deny the enemy, you deny the victory of Christ on the cross. You you deny the, the tricks and the deception that he has in the lives of believers all over this world. So you can't ignore it. Here's the thing. You simply got to let it know, let them know that the evil exists so they know who the fight is really against. Sometimes the enemy in the lives of believers or unbelievers comes through in huge ways, like addiction. Like this whole thing, this whole Facebook Live killer thing that's been going on. And you just see like pure evil. You're like, there's evil in this world. There's no doubt about it. But then other times it comes... Spiritual warfare comes in simple ways. And they need to know about this. Like, well, why do you always find distraction when you sit down to read the word? Well, I get phone calls, I get texts, you know, work calls me in, I got things going on. Well, you think that's just coincidence all the time? Well, I I guess I didn't really know. You need to know the devil don't want you in the word of God. He doesn't want you obeying Jesus. He wants you to get frustrated. He wants you to stay in a place of defeat all the time. Huh, I guess I never saw it that way. You don't have to be a crazy, weird, spiritual, demons-behind-every-bush kind of person to talk to your people about this. But you've got to let them know about the evil forces because awareness is key. I remember when I was in Utah, and I would walk people through baptism. In the first five, ten people that I baptized, um, I, I noticed a trend. And then 10, 15, 20 people, I noticed a trend. The trend was that up until their baptism, like a couple days before, they would have all kinds of weird stuff start happening in their life. They would have things pop up out of nowhere. They would have just an incredible discouragement that was just kind of unnatural. Just happened to be a day before their baptism. And then oftentimes after their baptism, I wouldn't see them for months. I started scratching my head thinking, huh, what's wrong? Did I not teach them well or what? What I realized is there was spiritual warfare happening in their lives and they didn't recognize it. They didn't know. And so they just let themselves get beat up by the enemy. I had one gal reschedule her baptism three times within 24 hours of her actual baptism. First time, her kids, they had all kinds of issues. Her kid who who, who was a, a fighter, um, he, he got into a fight the night before the, her baptism. Broke his face all to pieces. Broke his, the roof of his mouth. <laughs> How do you get the roof of your mouth broken? She said, I can't go to my baptism. He never had something crazy like that happen to his life. It just happened to happen 
day before she gets baptized. And all her family was going to come see her get baptized. Schedule it again. Something else the day before happens. Crazy, out of the blue. She said, maybe I just shouldn't get baptized. I said, no, we're going to get baptized. We're going to get baptized. The enemy is at work. And again, it's not always that it comes out of the bushes and, and there's some weird demon behind every bush kind of thing. I'm not talking about that. The most common form for the average person and most people in this room and most people that you talk to of spiritual warfare is in the thoughts. It's in the thoughts. This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul says that we disarm all arguments, that, that we um, take captive every thought <coughs> and make it obedient to Christ. So let me challenge you. When you're talking to someone and you find that they're struggling, there might be some spiritual warfare, ask them this. Ask them about their thought life. Ask them about their thought life. And if you hear them say things like, I just don't think I'm good enough. Or, I don't think God likes me. Or, I don't think I'm worthy of God's love. You start asking them, you say, where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? Make them tell you, is that coming from scripture or is that coming from something else? You see, if you have thoughts in your life that are accusational, You're not this. You're not that. You're not good enough. (coughs) What does the Bible say about the devil? He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's the author of confusion. He is accusatory. He accuses the saints. So if you have accusational thoughts, they need to know right off the bat. That's spiritual warfare. That's why Paul says, take that thought captive, test it against the truth. Tell you what, in, the, in this room right here and in the people that we talk to, if you simply took that one thing from tonight and said, you know what, I'm going to ask them for those struggling, I'm going to ask them about their thought life. What kind of thoughts you've been having lately that have been getting you down? And you simply talk to them about taking that captive to test it against the truth and not to meditate on that thought, not to let it dwell inside, to tear them apart, to make them depressed, to make them insecure, but to stop it at the gates and say, no, 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 no. Is this of God or is this not? <laughs> you find transformation probably pretty quick. You realize how many lies we each believe on a daily basis. And the enemy loves it. You got to teach him about haters. Verses 9 through 11. We got a good chunk to cover in the next 10 minutes. John says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. See, if you question whether John is the author of this, this is almost word for word what we just read in 1 John. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Got to teach him the truth doesn't change. The truth doesn't change. Now, listen to me when I say truth. It, there, there are truths that are subjective. And what I mean is, if I, if I tell you right now, um, hey, I'm standing in front of you guys right now, and, and you guys say, yeah, that is truth, right? But then I go and I sit back there and I say, am I standing in front of you? And he said, well, no, you're not anymore. Like, that changed. That truth isn't in the same. It changed. But there are biblical truths, uh, the principles of Scripture, the teachings of Christ. They don't change. They don't change. It says, John says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. When, when it says, 
goes on ahead, what it means is whoever progresses, whoever had a foundation of believing in Christ Jesus, and then they moved on to better things. They moved on to other teachings. They believed the false teachers, and they moved on. That's dangerous. And he says, do not receive him. Don't, don't, don't greet him in your house. Don't, don't bring him in. Why? Because if you've got someone who says, yeah, yeah, we know about Jesus, but let's move on to some other stuff. I once had someone in the church say, man, Crosspoint, uh, I'm struggling with them because they just, they just, they talk a lot about the gospel. And I'm just looking for like Christian living, more like Christian living teaching. And I, I said, that is, you have no idea. That is the greatest compliment we have ever received because that is Christian living. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. It all comes out of the good news of Jesus. You can't have that, then you move on to something better. That fundamental truth is everything. He says, don't receive him. You've got to teach him the truth doesn't change. Now, you might ask, well, don't we progress in our beliefs? Absolutely. You and I, we change all the time. But the truths don't change. Scripture doesn't change. It, it changes us. And you've got to understand that our culture has flipped that. This is the postmodern world that we live in today. The postmodern world that we live in today is the wide world, the wide path that says, okay, how in the world can I get the truth around me to change without actually having to change myself? I want the people around me to change. I want my circumstances to change. I want objective truth that people have believed for thousands of years to change because I don't want to change. I want them to change and revolve around me. And the Bible's saying, no. The truth don't change, but the truth changes you. So for a disciple, if you see someone stagnant in their growth in Christ, they're not experiencing much change, it might be because they're sitting back wanting everything around them to change, but they're not aligning themselves with the truth. They're not, they're not digging into God's word and realizing, man, my way of thinking has been off. This is why in Romans 12, Paul tells us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And he says, be transformed. He said, don't conform to the world. But be transformed by what? What's going to transform you? The renewing of your mind. When you realize, hey, I thought some things were true about life and about God and about the world. But now as I open up this book called the Bible, I'm realizing maybe I was wrong. And that's repentance. Because believing God is right and I might be wrong. Matter of fact, I am wrong. And I'm going to line up in his camp and under his truth, instead of saying, God, why can't you just change? Why can't you just be okay with all these scary things like homosexuality and all this other stuff that, that our culture loves right now? But, oh, it's not really cool, God. It's not cool to take that stance anymore. Can't you just change that? God's saying, align yourself with me. That's what it means to be Lord of your life. If you want to be Lord over me, if you want to be the God of your own life, stop calling yourself a Christian. Stop trying to get the Bible to fall under your way of thinking. It's going to change you. If you, um, let me, let me challenge you in this. When you're discipling someone, again, if you don't see them growing much, if you see them maybe wanting everything around them to change, but they don't want to change and align with God's word, ask them a couple questions like this. Ask them, how has God's word been changing you lately? Or, or ask them, what's God been saying to you lately about your situation? 
say, why are those so important? Because what that does is it makes God the agent of change. And we as disciples him are coming to him saying, God, you're going to change us as you draw us in to align with your will. Instead of us sitting back saying, God, bow down to what we think you should be like. Make, make Jesus Lord. Oh, that sounds simple. Truth don't change. Last but not least, he wraps it up similar to how he starts it. With love, with affirmation, with a desire for affection, intimacy. He loves these people. He says in verse 12, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. So that our joy may be complete. For anyone who's ever wanted to be a Christian but hates other Christians, look at John's voice. He's saying, if I'm with you physically, my joy is complete. It's a different perspective than what most of us have. Verse 13. The children of your elect sister greet you. So this is one more reason why we know he's probably talking to a church and not just an individual. um, Because he's saying, as he does in his other letters, the the church, uh, the friends here, they greet you. He he refers to a church there. Last thing we see. So you've got to teach them that they're not alone on this journey. You've got to teach them they're not alone. He could write all kinds of stuff. But he says, instead, I hope to come to you. I want to talk to you face to face. You ever been in the middle of sending someone an email or a text message? And before you hit send, you're like, hmm, no. (laughs) I don't think so. Why? Because some conversations just need to be done face to face. Because when you care about intimacy, when you love someone, you know, we just need to get together and talk, don't we? There's something that, that... you just can't get via letter. You've got to understand when you're talking to someone, you're trying to help them to follow Jesus. Discipleship isn't so much about sharing information as it is about sharing life. If you're not willing to go deeper than just telling someone what the truth is, if you're not willing to walk with them through the truth, to serve with them, to love them, to invite them into your home, to befriend them, to sacrifice for them, to serve them. You got no credibility to teach them anything. They need to know. Being a follower of Jesus is hard. It's at times discouraging because there's an enemy. It is... um, sometimes up and down. It is a lot of things. But listen to me, church. This is crucial. One thing it shouldn't be is lonely. Between the presence of God and the presence of believers, following Jesus should never be lonely. The church might feel lonely in a world that doesn't want what God wants. We are the minority now, if you didn't know that, in America. I feel like the tomb's about to open again. <laughs> this is good. If that would have been my last point, that would have been great, right? It is my last point, but not my last word. You say, what if they push me away? What if the person I'm talking to gets offended at what I'm saying? What if they don't receive it? What if they push me away? Well, then you make yourself available. You stand with them. 
you got to understand so many times we get discouraged in discipling people because right now it's not going well. Right now they're not responding. Right now they're not receiving. Right now they don't really want anything to do with it. The story ain't over. Thank God the story's not over. Sometimes, sometimes the greatest reflection of Christ, the greatest act, the most powerful act of discipleship that you can give someone is to simply make yourself available to them. Simply to stand with them, and if they push you away, to stand at a distance, but it's still standing for them and with them. That represents the presence of God in their life. That God's not going to leave you. That God's with you. And I'm going to reflect that. I'm not going to be a creeper, sit outside your window at night until you come around. Right? But, But I'm going to be here. And you say, yeah, I think the people I disciple know that. Do they know that? Or do you just think they know that? Sometimes I'll have people come in and we'll talk for a few weeks and then, and then they don't want to talk anymore. When I see them, I say, hey, if you need anything, let me know. I can't tell you how many times I tell people, I'm available. I'm available. I say it over, I'm available. They need to know you're available. One of the most powerful stories in Scripture, I think, is John 21. Of course, this John is the one who reminds us of it. It's the restoration, the reinstatement of Peter. Right? We're not going to read that story, but let me sum it up for you. He says, I love Jesus. I follow Jesus. I'm zealous for Jesus. He seems to be the one who leads others in knowing Jesus. Jesus even says, I'm going to build my church on this faith. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's got a lot going for him, and yet he denies Jesus three times, and he falls apart. And what do I do? So like the other disciples, he hears that Jesus is risen, and yet he he believes and he enjoys, and then they kind of go back to their old life, and he's fishing again, and then Jesus comes to the beach and says, come here, bring in all these fish. They bring in fish. They have breakfast together. It's probably still kind of tense between Peter and Jesus, isn't it? What does Jesus think about me? How could he love me still? He can't use me. I'm damaged goods. And then what happens? Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Yeah, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yeah, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? And then it says this. And Peter grieved. And he broke down a little bit. He said, why, why are you asking? Of course, he's, he's smart enough to connect the dots. I denied him three times in his death, and now he's, he, he's asking me three times. But he's grieved also because he sees, Jesus hasn't abandoned me. I'm not damaged goods. Uh, I, I, I can be used. He's asking me, do you want this? Do you want this? Do you want this? And most of us say, yeah, I want this, but you've got to believe Peter was feeling, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be reinstated. I don't deserve to serve you. And Jesus is saying, I ain't going anywhere, Peter. And you can't screw this up enough for me to abandon you. And you need to know, and the people you talk to need to know, they can't tick you off enough for you to abandon them. They can't mess this up enough for you to abandon them. Will it always, if things get crazy in that relationship, be healthy for you to be with them? Sometimes it's not. But you're available, and you don't abandon them. 
as it reflects Jesus doesn't abandon us. Let me ask you, do you know someone on an island tonight? Someone who maybe feels a little bit abandoned? Someone who feels like, I don't think anyone cares anymore. Call them. Go see them. Talk to them. Because there's a lot of things we could tell disciples. They need to know we have good intentions. They need to know how to love like Jesus. They need to know how to obey his commands. They need to know there is an enemy. They need to know the truth doesn't change. And they need to know they are not in this alone. Let's pray.